Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Welcome back to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler, joined as always by Jack Forehand and Ben Hunt. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. All right, this week, we got a full slate of stuff. We've got our zeitgeist with the issues of bumping people off of ballots. We've got a tweet of the week coming straight from CNN and how they're reporting on some (laughs) Iranian pilgrim issues. Uh, Jack, you have a... Wonderful dumb question about S&P 500 forecasts that I can't wait to get into. I've got a cultish corner on my French Rick Rubin faming advice that I got from my four-year-old niece this past week. And we're skipping mailbag this week. (laughs) Keep that stuff coming in, but we're skipping it for good reasons. The three of us have some optimistic New Year's resolutions we want to share. And I can't wait to hear what you guys came up with. But first, our big story. Trump's got some legal situations, and they're having an impact on narrative world. Jack, why don't you tee us up with just, we are riding into 2024 in full swing, getting ready for this election. Give us a little rundown on what former President Trump has on his plate in the months ahead. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and declare myself uh, breaking news as chief legal correspondent now. Uh, because I, I have searched on Vard to, uh, to determine what his, uh, what he's facing here. But uh, I do think I didn't know exactly what all of it is. So I think it's good just to briefly run through it. So, uh, in Florida, he's facing charges of mishandling of classified documents. He's charged with 40 counts related to allegedly taking classified documents from the White House to his Mar-a-Lago estate and obstructing the S&P's or the FBI's investigation. The trial date of that is May 2024. In Georgia, he's facing charges of election interference. 13 charges, including solicitation of election fraud and conspiracy to commit forgery for alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Uh, the proposed trial date there is August 5th. They haven't finalized that yet. Um, the, in relation to the Capitol riot, four federal crimes standing, stemming from his attempts to derail the transfer of power, two felony accounts, one conspiracy count of obstructing an official proceeding, one felony count of conspiracy to defraud the United States, one felony count of conspiracy against rights. The trial date there is March 4th. And then one civil uh, issue in New York. Part of that has already been resolved against him, but there's still uh, one more ruling that they're awaiting from the judge that that's a civil case. Um, He's been found liable for fraud in part of that so far. So that's all the stuff. Um, Ben, I guess my first question for you before we talk about this in narrative world is, you know, when you talk to people about this stuff, if you kind of talk to a Trump supporter, they'll tell you this is all just politically motivated garbage. If you talk to someone who's against Trump, they'll tell you, you know, these are really strong cases. I mean, is, is the truth kind of in the middle here? Is this a range of different things? Like some of this is legitimate. Some of this is probably politically motivated. I'm just wondering, like, as someone who doesn't know a lot about this, how should I look at all of this? Oh, I, I, again, it's, it's like um, Hemingway, you know, was asked about religion 
And his answer was, it's all true. So, you know, that, that's the answer with this, Jack. It's, it's all true. Is it p- politically motivated? Of course it's politically motivated. My God, it's absolutely politically motivated. Are these you know, real crimes that should be prosecuted because no one is above the law? Of course these are real crimes of which you should be prosecuted, prosecuted and no one is above the law. It, it's all true, Jack. It's, like, it's, 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 all, it's all of that. It's all of that. And the, the, the thing for me is, you know, it's, it's this saying that I've come to adopt so much, which is, uh, so what now what, right? I mean, this, this has happened. So, okay. Now what? And this gets into narrative world where I think that, you know, your first statement about how. Um, it is very motivating to Trump supporters. I think it's very motivating to people who are not quite Trump supporters, but look at some of these cases, particularly the the New York. Oh, you inflated the value of you know your real estate holdings when you applied for these bank loans. It's like, come on, man, really, really? I I, I mean, I I. I feel that way. Now, I don't feel that way about uh, classified documents at all. I, I think that's just, just this egregious thing that, yes, you absolutely should be prosecuted on. Absolutely. Uh, I absolutely feel that way about the, 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 the other federal trial. I feel that way about the, 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 the state trial in Georgia. I think these are all egregious and part of a pattern that, to me, speaks very clearly about what Trump was all about and why I could absolutely never vote for the man. And I think in my personal, he is not qualified to be president. Now that's a very different question from what we'll get to, which is the question of qualifications to be on a ballot. Uh, that's a very, that's, that's my personal view, right? Uh, in narrative world though, I'll tell you this. So first of all, the federal trials, if there is a conviction prior to the election, even if, even if there is, post-election, he can pardon himself. So the federal trial, the only trial I think that really matters from a, if Trump wins perspective, what's the, what are the consequences here, would be the, uh, the Georgia trial, which, you know, given Given the scope of that trial, I, I don't think there's any way that gets started before. I, I think even the the DA down there is saying that's a this is a 2025 thing. So you know there 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 is the possibility that the uh, the 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 DC trial, the federal trial, could have some implication on the ballot issue. So we should talk about that a little bit. But I think in narrative world, the impact of these is to um, garner more turnout and more support for Trump, that it mobilizes his side in a way that it does not mobilize anyone on the Democrat side. So I, uh, I think all of these trials are absolutely a positive for Trump. And, that's, and you think not, not just in the primary, but you think it's a positive in the general election as well? 100%. Is there an impact from like 
like the timing of this seems really interesting to me where it's, he get, he can be called into a courtroom starting in, you know, March or whenever the first trial starts. So it seems like there's a lot of focus on locking up the nomination in this window of time, knowing that like, and, and it's, it feels like a narrative gift again to his campaign that without him being on the campaign trail starting in March, we're just going to see like the courtroom drama unfold and that plays into the story and just. Yeah. This idea that, oh, he's going to take him off the campaign trail and that's going to be tough on him. I mean, are you kidding me? No, this is better for him. This is better for him. Right. It's better for him in the primaries. It's better for him in the general election. It, 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 it plays to his strength, which is the aggrieved Trump, right? That, that, that's his, that's his, it's not his entire shtick, but it's got to be at least 80% of his shtick. Right. The aggrieved Trump. And it, it energizes him. It gives him everything he needs to talk about at a rally. It's designed, it's, it's, it's pre-framed to be a great topic for his base because you can't, you can't gainsay it. You can't fact check it and say, you know, no, they're not trying to. But I, it's, it's perfect. It just, just makes me really sad. Is it possible he can be convicted of any of this stuff before the election or is, is the time frame not, doesn't work for that? And yeah. that, that seems like an interesting dynamic is what, it, what happens if he's convicted of some of this prior to November? There are no qualifications in the constitution about being elected president for, you know, for your, you know, being convicted of a crime. This is where it gets into the ballot issue, though. So, so maybe this is a good segue for that. Well, let's talk about what's going on with the ballots in particular. So, and I guess you tell me where you want to start in this, because we're seeing it come from both sides. We're seeing some management on the Republican side on who's on ballots and who's off. We've seen these rule mm-hmm. changes in Hawaii and Nevada, and then on the Democrat side and some other places, or I'm saying democratically motivated perhaps sides of what we're seeing in some of the the Northeastern states and other places. Who gets to, I think what's frustrating, it's not even about the voter issues. It's about the mechanism of voting itself. So break down what's going on with ballots and why this is where so much of the narrative land story is taking place right now. Yeah. Well, let's start with Colorado because that's where this ball really got rolling first. And the first thing to recognize about the the case that was bought, brought in Colorado is that it was brought by Republicans, right? It was started, funded, lawyered, staffed by never Trump Republicans. And it's, it's a reasonable legal claim, right? It's not a slam dunk for those who would say, oh, he's clearly a you know, should be disqualified because of the 14th Amendment. It's not so clear. It's really not. But it's also not plausible, right? It's absolutely plausible to hold Trump to the clear language of the 14th Amendment. I mean, it's, it is an absolutely valid question. I can see reasonable people disagreeing on his application. 
And I think it's a disaster for the American republic and democracy if it ends up kicking Trump off of a few blue state ballots. So getting back, so it was definitely started by never Trump Republicans who were focused on, you know, they were going to be, oh, so clever, right? This will force people to recognize, you know, Trump as the insurrectionist, which by the way, I believe he absolutely is. And it's not for what happened on Jan 6, which was, okay. I mean, I mean I'm, Anyway, let's talk about January 6th in a second. For me, it was everything leading up to January 6th that to me is an insurrection, right? It's, it's the, it's the organization, it's the planning, it's the conspiracy. It's all of that. It's all of that. Uh, so do I think that Donald Trump tried to hold on to power? and to deny election results that he knew did not go his way? Absolutely, I do. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the case was designed to try to be oh so clever to say, oh, we're going to, to, to focus people's attention on that, the voters' attention in general, and in particular, we're going to try to get him off the ballot, that that'll be the, the final thing we need in favor of DeSantis or whoever, whoever they were supporting when they started this, this process. And, um, I think it was, you know, there, there are different reasons why the lower courts said, yeah, we get your point about the insurrection and yet we're not going to say he can be kicked off the ballot. And then the, the Supreme court and whatever it was four to three decision said, yes, he should be stricken from the primary ballot. So this intra-primary or intra-party like fighting when it's going yeah. on, because I think this is really interesting and it ties into some of the other states too. I don't want to play follow the money with this, but it's, you can't stage a fight like that without a bunch of money in the fight, right? To direct things. Yeah. No. And so it was, it was the never Trumpers started this. Now that's not where it is today. That's not where it is today. Where it is today is this now been adopted by prominent Democratic Party officials, supporters, and the like to push this forward to get Trump off the ballot. It's 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 in sharp contrast to the DNC's position at the outset of this primary competition. So the DNC spent a lot of money in attack ads against, in particular, DeSantis, but other competitors against Trump. Because the, the wisdom of the DNC was, Trump's the only guy we can beat. Trump's right. the only guy we can beat, so let's do what we can to get him to secure the primary nomination. So that was, that was the DNC effort you know, for the, for the last nine months. And now you look at the head to head matchups and it's like, oh crap, I don't think we can even beat him. At which point you start taking on these desperate measures. And this to me is a desperate measure to say, we're going to use legal, you know, extra le extraordinary legal means 
to keep him off the ballot. But here's the thing, guys. If you if you only keep him off the ballot in states that Trump is not going to win anyway, is what we were talking about earlier. You are just playing to the aggrieved Trump, and you are energizing his supporters in every state where it is close. I mean, you want you want to drive turnout for Trump in Pennsylvania? Do this. Yeah, sure. Do this. It's just the most ah, myopic thing to be in favor of. I just I just can't get over it. So myopic. Um so, anyway, so I, I sure do hope the Supreme Court says no, 14th Amendment doesn't apply, whether it's a due process reason or whether it's, uh, oh, when it says officers, it's not talking about the president or, you know, there, there are different ways, I think, where they could either narrowly or broadly say, no, this, this isn't right. Uh, I sure do hope they do it. I sure do hope they do it in a unanimous fashion. But, of course, my fear is they don't. And just to clarify, if he's taken off the primary ballot, would it be a given then that he's also off the general election ballot in those states? Not a given, but a, but a pretty, pretty good likelihood. I mean, if it's, if it, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the game. How how are you going to put him on the, the presidential ballot? If you said that he's ineligible to be voted on for president and up in a, in a, in the primary ballot. What's so striking to me is this balancing act of perhaps more in this election than we've seen at any in any election previously, like this setting of the battlefields before you battle. Like really lining this up. And we saw it, you explained it really well with inside of the Republican Party, how they tried to block him off. Then when that doesn't work, then the Democrats take over that thing. And everybody is trying to stage the battle they think they're going to fight. But you can only control so much. Well, it's even worse than that, Matt, right? It's by, that, that by, it's this great Brit expression, right? We say someone is too clever by half. And to me, these are legal exercises in being too clever by half. That you are hurting your own cause by being oh so clever and oh, I'll, you know, We'll go to the state Supreme courts in friendly jurisdictions and get him kicked off the ballot. It's like, okay. I, I mean, if, if Trump wins the general election in Colorado, I mean, it's a freaking landslide of unparalleled proportion, right? Kick, kicking Trump off the ballot so that it's Biden against whoever write in candidates, that's if Biden's going to lose a head-to-head competition with Trump in Colorado, we're already done. I mean, the election is already spoken for and done for. It, it does nothing, nothing for winning the general election to kick Trump off the ballot in Colorado. In fact, as I'm suggesting, it makes it much more likely he wins the general election because it, it, these elections are all turnout. You're not changing anyone's mind. You're not, there are no swing voters. There are no undecided voters. 
The election, this election, will be decided, as every other presidential election for the last 20 years has been decided, by turnout. Can you run up the score in districts where people like you? And can you minimize turnout in districts where people don't like you? That's it. That's what American democracy at presidential levels is. It's not about changing minds or switching votes. It's about suppressing turnout and driving turnout. Period. End of story. And this is a turnout driver for Trump. It's just, it just, it just boggles my mind. And this one, think think about this, Jack. Hang hang on one second. So let's say Trump is kicked off the ballot in three or four blue states. And then, in fact, Trump is elected president of the United States. How exactly does that work again? Right? That, 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 a, that a state that said, no, this person is not qualified to be elected president. They're now president? How, how does that work exactly? Or let me put it this way. It's not very difficult to imagine how that could go terribly wrong, right? It's not difficult to imagine how that could all go terribly wrong. So I, I get it. Like I say, it's not a slam dunk legal question on either side. It's a legit question. You want to pursue it, pursue it. My only point is it's a very damaging to anyone who does not want Trump to win. And B, the consequences of this can only lead to, um, political violence. Well, that's kind of what worries me is the opposite of what you said. Like, what what if Trump kicked off the ballot in four blue states and Trump loses? Now, we know that had zero impact on the election because he was going to lose the states anyway. But it's a different thing. You know, if we're getting into an election that people are going to dispute, it's one thing to dispute it based on voting machines or something like that. It's different to dispute it based on they changed the rules and we lost. So even though in reality, he it wouldn't have made any difference, like, if you give people who are want to dispute this election the grounds of the rules were changed, to me that's a much higher problem, you know, than, than what we saw in the last election. So that really what's, is what worries me because you've talked about that a lot in this podcast. The idea that no matter what happens here, we might see some really, really significant challenges to this and some really significant, you know, infighting in, inside of our country. And it worries me if the rules are changed in advance and that happens, what it might mean. I think you're right, Jack. I think you're right. It's. Um... Look, the only way to beat Trump, and more importantly, to beat Trumpism, is to defeat him at the ballot box, like you did three years ago. And you have to defeat him again, and if necessary, again, and if necessary, again. You have to defeat him as many times as he's going to run for office. That's the way you beat him. And if your answer to that is, well, I don't know if we can beat him, then run a better candidate. 
there's, there's your answer. Run a better freaking candidate if you can't beat the guy. Because if you can't beat this guy, you're, <laughs> you're not sending your best if you can't beat Donald Trump. It's it, the, the, the mendacity on all sides here is just, it's just overwhelming to me. And I just, it just, if I think about it too much, I get too angry. So I'll try not to think about it too much. Jack, let's dive into the tweet of the week. Why don't you get this up on the screen? Tell us what we're reading here. CNN's running with some information. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, this was something until we, until we did this right here, I wasn't really familiar with. So this this will be a good learning experience for me. Um, this is a tweet you sent, Ben, four hours ago, I think. Um, and, and you wrote about something something that's going on, um, I believe, related to Iran. And what you wrote is, CNN just described the people attending the political ceremony marking General Qasem Soleimani's death as pilgrims. I understand why the theo-fascist generals running Iran use this loaded language. I don't understand why CNN copies them. So can you give us some background on what's going on here and then maybe talk about this tweet? Sure. So, uh, Qasem Soleimani was the, uh, revolutionary guard general who was really responsible, I think, for creating this network of client factions and, uh, proxy, uh, warlords, if you, if you will, uh, for Iran throughout the, the Middle East, whether we're talking about you know, Hezbollah or Hamas or Houthis, you know, he's, he, he was, I'll call it the mastermind to kind of construct that network. And he was blown up at the Baghdad airport by an American airstrike four years ago. So apparently there's a big ceremony every year, the anniversary of his death, where the Iranian government gets plenty of people to come out and, you know, say, you know, death to the Zionists and have a big picture of the now martyred Qasem Soleimani and, you know, everybody goes off on that. So a, a, a bomb, I think two bombs, went off in the crowd today killing, you know, more than a hundred people. And I'm going to leave that alone. Right. Cause I've got, I mean, that, that, that's problematic to me that let's assume that this was done by Israel or the, or, you know, the, done, um, as a covert thing to blow up the crowd there. And that's highly problematic to me. But what is also problematic to me was then they're talking about this on CNN. They bring on their correspondent to talk about what happened. And she describes the people attending this state-sponsored political rally against Israel, you know, around the, the, she describes the attendees as pilgrims, as if this is part of a religious pilgrimage of, you know, 
devout men, women, and children making the pilgrimage to General Qasem Soleimani's you know, grave for this religious ceremony. And I get it. Right? There's nothing that happens in Iran that's not described by I call it the theo-fascist generals. Right? There's there's nothing that's described as not being religious. It's a theocratic state. It is it is the government of religion. So everything by definition is religious. In my mind, that's a total perversion of what religion is. I get why Iran would describe the people attending there as pilgrims in the same way that I understand why Hamas would describe, you know, when the the, the, the hospital was hit with one of their own rockets. I understand why they would describe that as, you know, an Israeli terror attack. I get why Hamas does this. I get why Iran does this. I don't get why CNN and the New York Times do this. That's what I don't get. I mean, it seems like get it. there's a lot of parallels to that, right? That we talked about before here is, you know, you've got like a, a journalistic, you know, company taking what a government would say and using it. So like, why are we seeing that? Like, why is that type of thing happening on a repeated basis? I tell you, something hit me today and I, and I think this is, um, I don't think this is just specific to CNN. I think it's also true with the New York times, WAPO. I, I think it is now the new structure of how you cover international news. So what you see, CNN's perspective, there, there is no CNN um, branch in whatever, Tehran. What they have is they have, they've contracted with a person to be their local correspondent. All right, so you saw this in the CNN, and you see it even today, right? So you'll have the anchor. And they'll throw it over to their correspondent in Gaza City or Tehran or Cairo, wherever. And then they'll have a back and forth between the anchor in New York and this correspondent. I think this is absolutely how, like say, the Times and other newspapers work too. It's not their staff writer who's there observing and writing the story they had, you know, you, you would call them stringers, right? I mean, you have these, they're, they're contract employees of yours. I think these contract employees, I, I think, I'll just go ahead and say it. I, I absolutely sense, believe that there has been a concerted effort particularly by Iran, which has got all the money in the world and is supporting this stuff everywhere, to impact the choice of, you know, the, the beliefs of these correspondents. You see what I'm saying, right? It's, it's not like CNN hires their journalists 
here in America and says, okay, we're going to station you in Tehran for a couple of years. None of that happens anymore. Or that there's any editorial responsibility. So it's not like we have this information, it gets passed to some central thing and they're like pilgrims. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're just talking directly to this person you hired, you know, there in Tehran to be your correspondent, your local correspondent. And what she says is these were pilgrims. And it's just so striking to me that that, then that just becomes how you'd start to describe it. And what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to kind of call out your own correspondent there on the air. Of course not. You're not going to do that. Are you going to say, oh gosh, I, you know, how did we vet this person again? You know, and you know, who's making our hires for these, you know, these, these correspondents. Anyway, I, I, I absolutely think that the, that the whole structure of how news is reported lends itself to uh, governments finding ways to mold the opinion that is being presented live on air in U.S. media. I think that was a big part of the New York Times debacle, and I think it's a big part of what I hear and see every day in CNN's coverage of Middle Eastern issues. I'm just curious, like, are these, would this correspondent be like an Iranian citizen that they've hired? Could be. Sure. Why not? Yeah, because it just, it just doesn't seem like a recipe to get the truth. I mean, someone operating under a regime like that, I mean, you, you can't exactly speak your mind in Iran. Um, so like using someone like that to get the facts out, like, and that's under that, those types of circumstances, you know, it seems like a, you know, you may not get the truth out of that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But, it, but I think what you often see is, you know, somebody you hired maybe from Cairo and they go spend, you know, three months in Tehran or something like that. I mean, it's, it, these aren't closed societies, right? Uh, but, but yeah, I think this is absolutely the, uh, a big part of the issue. Nobody... Nobody has staff reporters that they station in these cities and areas anymore. You have relationships with local correspondents. Uh, and I think that is a recipe for the type of linguistic insanity that I thought describing the people attending this, this funeral as pilgrims uh, lends itself to. Well, let's take a, let's take a shift away from reporting to another type of reporting called forecasting. So (laughs) Jack, you got a dumb question, but again, these are never dumb questions. Wall street just did its favorite version of the anti new year's resolution, which is to predict what will happen in 12 months time at a notoriously hard to predict index. Ask away. Well, um, yeah, I'm just happy to know that I now, I now know where the S&P 500 is going to end 2024 because I, I wasn't sure before, but now that all these forecasts are out, um, I don't know if you guys have looked at their, the track record of these from 2023, but it was not the, not the strongest track record of all time. I, I don't believe, uh, if you look at all the major ones, at least any of them were even close um, to what actually happened. But you know, what, what interests me about this is like, almost why does it persist? You know, this is sort of like a, I mean, Matt, I think when Matt and I were talking about before, he was talking about like the performative purpose of this. Like th- this happens every year. It's a show people put on. 
I guess you have to do it for your clients. It's always wrong. Like, I just wonder, like, why does this type of thing keep going on? You know, despite the fact that I think anybody who knows anything about this knows this is probably not, you know, doing anyone any good. Yeah, look, it is. It's pure signaling. um, In a way that's designed to. Not make a prediction. But designed to show how influential you are today. Here's what, I, here's what I mean. There are no actual decisions or investments that are made on the basis of these predictions, right? No one listens to whoever the Barclays guy or the Goldman Sachs guy or the JP Morgan guy, nobody listens to predictions says, great. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy some, you know, year out option spread on that target because yes, I'm going to, I'm going to put some money down on that, on that prediction. Nobody, it does not happen. There is, there is no, there is nothing actually at stake with these predictions for the outcome. The impact of these predictions is in what coverage today do you get from the prediction you're making about a year from now? You see what I'm saying, Jack? I mean, it's, it has nothing to do with the actual prediction. It has everything to do with what does the coverage of my prediction say about me and my pecking order with my missionary appeal, with my Q rating, these are all kind of words we use for this kind of stuff, you know? What does it have to to do with my position today? That's why we do it. That's why we do it. It's an, it's just an exercise in pecking order. It's also an exercise in uh, being cautiously optimistic. <laughs> so, so the, some of these macro strategists have an internal audience that they have to support, uh, their financial advisors, right? They have to support their financial advisors because it's the financial advisors and Matt can speak to this certainly that are actually facing clients, having conversations with actual clients. And the client will ask, what do you think? What do you think? And the answer you must give to your client, the only answer that is acceptable is that you are cautiously optimistic. That's the phrase. That's what it means. You are cautiously optimistic. It's the right balance of, you know, I'm, I've got my eyes wide open. I know there's stuff that could happen and all like that. And yet you got to buy, you got to be there cautiously optimistic. So those are the two purposes, Jack, right? One is what does it say about my position today in the pecking order, in the hierarchy of missionariness as a macro strategist 
And how can I support the financial advisors who are facing clients in my firm? How can I give the right, yeah, you can shade it a little of some degree of caution or some degree of optimism, but it's how can I present a message of cautious optimism that will support my partners in the firm? It's a, It's interesting to me on that cautiously optimistic point, like, you know, those of us who've studied S&P 500 returns know that there are very few years, although the average return may be around 10%, there's very few years where the actual return is in that range. But all of these predictions are usually pretty close near near that 10% range. You don't get the guy predicting the 40% increase or the 30% decline, you know, usually they keep it pretty tight in, in that range. Cautiously optimistic. Which is why a year like last year, they get all get it wrong, basically, because you get a year that's up 30% or, you know, 20 some odd percent. They're not, nobody's willing to be, you know, that optimistic. So, or you get the big down year, they're all wrong. You know, well, it's like, they all got it wrong the year before that too. About that's it, right. You know, it's, so every year it's, 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 it's wrong. And that's why I say, and, and nobody pays attention to this stuff. There, there is no actual investment that is ever made on the basis of an end of year S&P 500 prediction. Ever. So Matt, uh, shifting here from the excitement of year-end predictions, I, I don't think you're going to offer us a year-end prediction here, um, but it is time for my favorite part of the podcast. It's time for your Cultish Corner. So we've been talking behind the scenes a little bit. Ben, it sounds like you've uh, picked up the Rick Rubin book. Is this, is this true? I have. I have indeed. So, it, you know, it, it, all, it all comes from you, Matt. You recommended initially and gave us a little excerpt and I just, I finally took the plunge and it's well worth it. Well, good. I'm glad to see you're enjoying it. I had to pull my copy out the other day. We're, we're well noted and bookmarked. I will plug this book as being definitely not the book I was expecting, but very happy that the book it ended up being. Tell the audience who Rick Rubin is again. I mean, we should, you should do this again. Absolutely. So Rick Rubin is, is famous as a music producer, but to follow the history of this man, I think it's actually most useful for me to tell this story this way. My first awareness, you know, the people in life you're aware of their existence before you're actually aware of their existence, like they're exerting influence on you before you know they're exerting influence on you. So growing up in the, in the eighties, I have my, my parents grew up very devout classic rock and Aerosmith fans and whatever else. And I have this memory of being glued to the black and white TV set and watching the run DMC Aerosmith walk this way video and just thinking this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. And flash forward, you know, in the, in the early nineties or at some point I'm hearing these other things and I start to read liner notes and I start to go like, oh my God, this red hot chili peppers thing that I love that opened all these other things, these beastie boys albums, this Rick, this, this thing with Aerosmith and run DMC, it's all Rick Rubin. Everywhere I turn, there's another liner note that starts to tell me it's this guy. And so from starting in the eighties and across musical genres, everything from Adele to Slayer, this man has helped artists get their message to the world in a way that a uh, very, very few other people have. What I want to talk about is a quote from this book. And I mention it. So on Epsilon theory, you can read, I wrote a piece called, uh, the Rick Rubin of advice and talking about his influence on my career, both in music and as a financial advisor and in the finance space. But there's this, there's this idea that he says in his definition of talent, 
I think this is really, really important. We talk about creativity and that's why it's in this cultish corner. And he says that talent is the ability to let ideas manifest themselves through you. This is a really cool and novel idea that talent includes this ability to let an idea manifest itself through you, not to force it through, but to let, to let it, to allow it. And in my piece, I basically make these points. I say, he's got three talents recruitment. He can listen to others really well. He can trust the feelings and emotions that listening evokes both in himself and others, meaning he can help others to do it as well. And that he can relentlessly repeat these first two talents until he can finish a project. Because if you don't finish the project, nothing else in the world is ever going to count. And that's a huge, huge deal. So talent in and of itself is little more than a framing device. And that's what I wanted to bring it up here for. If talent is nothing more than a narrative device, the ability to let ideas manifest through you, then framing and creativity go hand in hand, both in how we study what we see out in narrative world. We understand someone is always putting a frame around something. And also in the way that when we create something, our goal is not to just spew information out in the world or to borrow from the other section, not just let the boots on the ground Iranian importer, uh, reporters decide that these people are pilgrims without any filter that we ourselves apply. Creativity and framing go hand in hand. And talent is the ability to actually put those frames around things and discern frames around things in a way that's novel and useful for our audience. The more I think about Recruven and the more I think about his work and his influence on me and his influence on all of us as we talk about narrative is this idea to constantly build and shape frames. So in the purest sense, we can let the art come shining through. I love that, Matt. I've got, and this kind of leads to in reading his book from my resol one of my big resolutions for this year. Well, let's do this. Yeah. Let's go straight into resolutions. I can't wait to hear what you have. I want to hear what you have for a resolution because mine connects back to this too. So ladies and gentlemen, our optimistic revolutions, <laughs> unbreaking <laughs> where the world doesn't end and yeah. whoever gets elected president, everyone maybe doesn't live happily ever after, but lives happily. So Matt, I think you're spot on with how you described what Ruben was talking about and about the process of creating. And it's, it is a, a process of framing and getting it to completion. For me, I've been writing Epsilon Theory. This is going to be the 11th year. And I've written, oh my God. I mean, like I've completed, I finished it's more than two war in pieces now. Right. And, and so hundreds, maybe a thousand separate notes that I finished and I've done. And for me, it's, I don't get the same joy out of it that I used to, Matt. I don't get the same joy out of it. It, I think I've become too focused on the framing. 
it's become work. Right. And, and I'm fine with that. Right. And, 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 and I think I'm good at it, but, and, and I think I'm better at it than when I started. Right. I think I'm as a craftsman of that written word and the, the, the think pieces, I think mm-hmm. I'm better at it today than I've ever been, but I don't get the same sort of intrinsic joy out of it. And so the, the chapters in Ruben's book that for me, that were most impactful where he's got someone specifically on this for, for me, I need to take the frame away, right? I've, I've gotten, I've gotten really good at putting frames on things. I need to take the frame away for a little bit and have more openness to whatever is going to come my way. It's funny. As soon as I made this resolution, the next morning I wake up with a big idea, a big idea that I'm really excited about writing. And I haven't had that feeling in a long time. So I love the way you described it. I think you're exactly right. And for me, it's kind of the flip side of it. I need to take the frame away to let myself be open for it, to, to, to recapture the intrinsic magic of writing and creating for me. That's my big resolution. I love that. And I, I know I'm bringing us back to this. So I'm going to, I'm going to play risky fast and loose here, Jack. Go ahead and do yours, and then I've got something about framing for mine. What have well, you got well, for us, Jack? Well, first of all, I was disappointed you didn't ask me if I knew who Rick Rubin was, because every person you've asked me in the podcast, <laughs> I did not know who they were, and I finally knew one, and you still did not ask me uh, who Rick Rubin was. So, uh, and, and I would, by the way, I would really recommend, you know, I'm not as much of a reader as you guys are. Like, he is awesome on podcasts as well. Like, there, there's a bunch of them out there, but like, if, if you listen to him, I think he's, Tim Ferriss was a good one. Like, if, if you listen to him do interviews on podcasts, like he's an incredibly thoughtful guy. Like I've learned a lot from listening to him. Um, so, but anyway, my, yeah, my, my resolution this year is starting to get better balance in terms of listening to what other people think. Like the, the, the idea, you know, I started from the idea, I probably care too much about what other people think. And I probably have for most of my life, but there's, there's a balance there. Like if, if you care too little about other people think what other people think, you kind of become like a sociopath or something. So like, I'm trying to get like a mix here of, taking opinions that are different than mine and understanding them, like taking feedback that's negative about what I'm doing and learning from it, but, but also kind of, you know, forging my own path and not worrying about how other people react to it. And, and I think that's a really, really tough balance to strike in life. Um, so I, I'm working on that and that, that's going to be my goal this year is to do a better job of that. I love that. And I love that these are all getting like, they're all kind of lined up with this. So I I wanted to tell you guys a story. So as you both know, so I got married about a week ago. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Very, very exciting. And part of the the joy of the wedding and part of why we coordinated in between the holidays was that was the only way we could get the family and the people we wanted around for it, which meant I have a brother and a niece who live in France and we were able to get them into town for, you know, the week of the holidays and a little bit more. So my brother and I took, uh, took his daughter, my niece, Pia, who's um, four years old. We took her for a walk in the woods, a little hike the other day. And so we're walking in the woods and she calls me, you know, Uncle Machu in her little four-year-old French voice, which basically means <laughs> she can have anything she wants ever for the rest of the time. <laughs> and uh, we're walking in the woods and we, we come on like these two trees where like the branches cross over in the middle so that it 
in her mind, it basically, she, she comes to this thing, she pauses and she yells to me and she's like, I'll go back to it's a door. And I'm like, it is a door. And she's like, this is my house. And I'm like, yes, this is your house. So she walks through this door and she's like, this is my living room or something like this is my house. And now let me remind you, I'm with my brother. <laughs> this is my brother who's just shy of two years younger than me. And we revert to brother mode really, really fast. So now, even though it's a four-year-old saying, this is a room and this is my house. Now we start asking questions and we're like, oh, this is a really big room. And she's like, yes, it is. And we're like, where do you keep the food? And she's like, over here. And she's pretending something's a refrigerator. And then my brother's like, how much does it cost this place to eat or to heat? And I'm like, yes, it feels really drafty. Pia, can you turn the heat up? It's cold out here. And she's not having it. But, but this is the point. It goes back to Ruben. Framing and creativity go hand in hand. And there's this wonderful book. And Ben, you're making me think about it. He says, however you frame yourself as an artist, the frame is too small. Framing and creativity is finding the door in the woods and making believe. But the reality is the room is as big as the world. It's as big as you want it to be. It's, it's just what you said. It's like letting those inputs in. That's my, my resolution is I... I want the frames to be able to see things because without the frame, there's no creativity, but I want the inputs to be as wide as the world because I feel like for so many years of my life, I've been so narrowly focused on just the things we're talking about markets. We're talking about financial planning. We're talking about these things. My realization of the last year was, wait, somebody cares if I talk about Rick Rubin? Like I've been fascinated right. with this my whole life, but this is like in a box for my like dorm room friends from years ago. Ben, when I hear you saying that it feels like work, I can relate to that. I got stories about why I stopped doing music stuff for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. Opening that aperture again, that's, that's the greatest feeling in the world. A bigger frame. I love it, Matt. Well done. Guys, I have a summary for us. Nice. Let's uh, favorite part. <laughs> let's yeah, close Matt, this Matt, out. We got a lot of really good, uh, you know, we, we posted the first one of these on Twitter recently, and I heard from a few different people how impressed they were that you can do this. So uh, we, we've got a challenging set of topics this time, but it, it is pretty amazing. You can do this on the fly and come up with this every week. Well, this is uh, <laughs> framing at its finest. Here we go. All right. So today, things we talked about on the show, and as always, like, subscribe, follow. Why not share breaking news with a friend? We're trying to grow this channel as much as we can here on YouTube. And good we idea. Think we yeah. think we're doing pretty good work. So. End of every episode, here's a summary. I'm going to be better at sharing these online this year so that if somebody says, what was that episode about? Hey, here you go. Skip to the end. Give them this clip. So today we talked about, and Ben, I love this expression when we're taking in the news, ask, so what, now what? Because in narrative space, what does it mean? And that means we're asking to who, we're asking why, we're asking how. In extra market sense, we're asking when, because there's lots of stuff that they're just flowing stuff out there with no endpoint. Also a narrative world. We talked about setting the battleground before you fight or vote really in this case and how in that strategy, what we've seen a lot of in the last six months is people getting too clever by half. And that's this idea that you overthink the thing and then you almost end up painting yourself into a corner because you've been so smart and cute about what you're trying to pull off. Regarding the election this year, it's a battle for turnout. Ben, you really drove this point home. This is about suppressing turnout, and this is about driving turnout. And the way that either party wins 
is a battle at the ballot box to get people to turn out, turn up, and vote. Regarding CNN and the reporting of this Iranian situation, it's a reminder that the structure of reporting has changed. I think we're all very used to talking about the influence of social media on news, but cases like this are really important to point out and highlight that this is not about the news. This is not about finding the truth. This is just about story. And when there's no editorial division or somebody to focus this up or help explain, it falls back on us. It falls back on the consumer of the information to understand this is the story, not the truth, not even necessarily the news. Regarding S&P forecasts, I think the most valuable part of forecasts, Jack and I, we had this conversation the other week doing a year ahead forecasting episodes on our other podcast. The most important thing about a forecast is the conversation that it sparks. Ben, I think you nailed this by saying they're never a prediction. They're a sig signal of influence. And that's the whole idea. When the Wall Street analysts go out, and I was in this seat for a long time, here's a story for you to be cautiously optimistic about intended to exert influence and provoke a conversation that's already directionally oriented with a positive outcome. That's what these S&P 500 forecasts are for. There's nothing wrong with that. But in all forecasts, that's our goal. Provoke a conversation in one way, shape, or form or another. And last but not least, all of our resolutions, this idea that talent is always about framing. Sometimes framing can be work. Sometimes framing can take the joy of being creative away. And all of us are looking at ways to expand that view, to get outside of the frame. We still want to put the frame on. We still want to do that work and be creative in the story and the way that we design what we want to put out and release into the world. But it's not just about the frame. It's about being creative. It's about finding that sense of play. And that's something I'm really excited to do in 2024 with you too. So thanks guys. Thank you, Matt. That was well put as it usual. Great. Thank you. I'm excited as well. And happy new year to everybody. Happy, happy new, year. new year. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at practicalquant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter.